yes, I am saying directly that I believe that child abuse probably has some causative effect on homosexuality. I am saying the very thing people hope I'm not saying. Welcome back to Mind Matters, everyone. I'm Harrison Cayley, joined in the studio by Elon Martin Hello. and Adam Daniels. And we are very pleased to have back with us, it's been over a year, Joshua Slocum of Disaffected. Joshua, welcome back to the show. Great to see you again. And you're getting younger by the day. Thanks, guys. Um, <laughs> well, good. <laughs> I was just saying the other day, um, I, I'm really, I get mistaken for being younger than I am, and, and I like it, but I'm, I'm going to be 50 in two years, and I'm really hoping that, that that lasts that long, because I'm going to spend the entire year, starting on my birthday, telling everybody that my name is Sally O'Malley, and that I like to stretch and kick. <laughs> Have I lost you? You have no idea what I'm talking about. Never mind. Old Saturday Night Live. Someone in your audience will get it. For sure. Yep. Yeah, we have, uh, I think we've got a, a few boomers in the audience, but or no. <laughs> I was searching Piss memory off. banks. I was like, Sally O'Malley. Because I'm 51, and I was like, I should know that. But I don't. All right, Josh, you've got uh, a new website and a new consulting service. So if anyone, we'll, we'll put the links to this, the links in the description. It's joshuaslocum.net. And this is a new kind of venture for you, right? So I, could you tell us a bit about how it started and what you actually do? So what, what kind of service you're providing for people? Sure. It's, well, it is just starting. It's, it's, it's in some ways an extension of the show uh, for people who don't know what the show is about. The weekly show I do called Disaffected with my partner and producer, Kevin. No, can't even say partner anymore. We're not romantically linked. We're business partners. We love each other, but not like that. Um, the show is about basically narcissism, emotional instability, and the kinds of psychological distortions that we find in psychopaths, in people with borderline personality disorder, narcissistic personality disorder, and how these things, which often make themselves really well known in domestic abusive and child abuse situations like what I grew up with, are now structuring our public uh, conversation uh, and have completely taken over the left in my view. The consulting is something I've been wanting to do for, it's something I've been doing informally with friends and associates for years, people have come to me and, and said, I have an extremely difficult cousin or father or mother. And these are people who display behaviors that may strongly, you know, may indicate that you're dealing with somebody with a cluster B personality disorder, a pathological narcissist, or an emotionally unstable borderline. So you're, you're dealing with people who have a temperament like this. This is who they are. It's not what happens to them on a bad day. I've been giving out advice to friends um, for a long time, because of course I had to deal with this and I had to come to terms with it in my own life when I separated my, my life from my mother's. Uh, and now I'm offering that to people who want an experienced layman 
to talk to you about this. What I'm offering is not therapy because I am not a mental health professional. And I, I don't hold myself out as that. I don't want you to think that I'm offering you therapy. And I'm actually glad that I'm not a mental health professional. I do not wish to be debrief. If I had the choice, I would not go back to school and do it. I would rather do this. I think that there is a lot of value to people who are feeling stuck in these situations and these abusive relationship patterns in speaking to, in another era, I would have used the term survivors, but I strongly dislike that now because there's so much victimology attached to it. But speaking to people who have extensive experience in their own lives, personally, professionally, like me, I think I think can bring a lot of clarity to people who are trying to figure out, do I cut my losses and go? Do I try to establish better boundaries with this person? Do I adjust my expectations? So that's the kind of that's the kind of discussion that I offer people. Mm -hmm. That's great. And that's kind of what I've what I've noticed about your show and from the viewer feedback you get in the comments, I mean, your shows, you know, it helps so many people because there are so many people that are going through just the same things that you've gone through. And so of course, people, people seem to, to resonate with that. Well, of course they do if they're, if they're going through something similar. So you, you've, you're kind of sure. just taking it to the next level, I, I think, because by, by just, by just offering your story and, and yourself just as an example of, of, you know, what you can, what you can learn about yourself and your relationships and how that understanding can progress over time, just that in itself is helpful. But um, to actually get that one-on-one, -on -one, you know, to be able to to share specifically what what you're going through and to 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 just throw those ideas, bounce those ideas against you, someone who um, who knows what they're talking about, you know, even if you don't have a, a degree or anything, you've you've got a lifetime experience of it. So, you know, who better to who better to ask than a I apprenticed than, under the best. Yeah. <laughs> and you're articulate and you're smart. So it's not like uh, it's not like you've just gone through this and, and you know, you don't have a great understanding of it. I mean, you're you you like I, I do consider you an expert in this regard just through just through all the experience and the, the knowledge that you have. So. So, yeah, I'm really happy that I was really happy well, to see that you did this. Yeah. Well, there, there's a lot of people out there who have a lot more expertise than than they may know that they have. And I talk to them all the time, whether it's in a session. I mean, I've just started this up. I just launched it about two or three weeks ago. Or, uh, But I noticed from the comments, from the emails that we get at the show, I think what you said, Harrison, about needing to bounce it off another person in a live one-on-one -on -one conversation is correct. I, I spoke to someone within the past couple of weeks who came to me for a session and uh, who had a really good grasp of the dynamics that were going on in her life. Um, she had some professional mental health experience and she had already come to the conclusion that some of the family members she was dealing with were in fact people with severe cluster B personality disorders. But it was emotional for her because they were family members and it was more difficult to see her way out of it. And as, as we spoke, you know, I, I, I tried the, you know, before I, before I answer your questions, I'm, gonna, I'm going to ask you, client, some questions. How would you see this if, if a client came to you? What advice would you give to a girlfriend 
who came to you and said, Sally, X, Y, and Z. And just that by itself um, and the conversation that we had, I think was helpful in, in her being able to see that, yes, she actually does have this expertise. She's not wrong just because it's her family. Um, and, and, it, and it built some confidence. And I know I need that too. I mean, I tell viewers and listeners pretty frequently because people are, are really kind and they often say that they think the show is a lifeline, that it keeps them feeling sane uh, amidst the insane way that people are behaving. And that's very nice to hear, but I really mean it when I say the feedback and the interaction with the people who watch the show is just as important to me. I am susceptible, excuse me, you said I was articulate. Uh, I am susceptible to gaslighting and indecision just as much as anyone else is. And in some ways more than the average person because that was kind of installed in me. I get the same confirmation back from people. So I really enjoy it on that end as well. Well, um, just a quick comment about that. It's, you know, so something that we're all vulnerable and, and weak to until we become aware of the fact that we're weak to it. So just the awareness in and of itself is a kind of defense. It's like, am I being, uh, you know, in this particular situation or context, is this my default uh, weakness coming out that I'm unable to see something like that as a kind of cognitive um, uh, work on oneself. But what I wanted to say, Josh, about your um, your guidance and your your new uh, business is that, and this speaks a lot to your show. So you have this experience with your mom and cluster B personality and extreme forms of narcissism, but you've your stock and trade is applying it and and looking at that template and how it manifests itself through wokeness and through radical leftism. Yes. And so, you know, just as a possibility, you know, right now it sounds as though you're focused on um, giving feedback or asking pertinent questions to individuals based, you know, uh, who have problems around interpersonal uh, issues with people in their lives. But there's also, I imagine, uh, a, a budding new clientele, if you will, of people who are specifically um, being uh, on the receiving end of a lot of shit from people who are uh, woke and crazy, like maybe workplace stuff, workplace yeah. stuff that that's actually what I was thinking yep. of most. Um, and so you I mean, that's also to me a, a very uh, specific niche that you have some great insight into. Well, there's a lot of it around, and there are a lot of people who are feeling that pinch from the woke. You know, I used to say, and I said it a lot in the beginning of the show when we started it in early 2021, we have a we're that we're living in an, a basically domestically abusive relationship with the woke left, but in public and on a societal scale. I've changed what I say. It's not the woke left is not just the woke left anymore. It's now the left. This is the mainstream left. It doesn't mean that every single person who says I'm on the left or every single Democrat is this insane. I'm not making that claim. Not, not, not. Okay. Um, but I am saying that, yes, 
this ideology is now the lingua franca of the entire left, not just the fringe. The fringe is now in charge. And the vast majority of people who consider themselves on the left, even if they're not pushing this, they are complicit. Yes, I am saying that every single one of them is on some, in some way complicit, either tacit silence, which functions as support, um, or going along with the increasingly radical and increasingly anti-human societal prescriptions that are demanded and pushed by the woke. If you are not speaking up against this, you are part of the problem. And yes, I do realize some listeners right now, as I'm speaking, are saying, he sounds just like those people in BLM who say silence is violence. I, I hear you and anticipate your objection. Um, it's a matter of degree. It is a reality, it's a fact. Take away the past five or six years, leave that out of your mind. R remember the world that used to exist six years ago. Every person, regardless of their place on the political spectrum, agreed with the reality, because it is reality, that social pressure works, that loud voices can dominate the conversation, and that the only way to change who is dominating the conversation is to speak up and put pressure back from the opposite direction. That's just part of normal human social relations. It's not a claim of silence is violence like BLM. And if you don't say everything I say right away, then you're making sure people are getting killed. I'm not saying that, but I am saying that yes, everyone has a responsibility and most people on the left right now are completely failing in their responsibility. Um, I have failed in my responsibility. I do not exclude myself from this category of people. I used to be a leftist and I used to be woke. I was the people that I'm talking about right now. So I do not believe that, that people are morally irredeemable. I don't believe that they're all personality disordered, but I do believe, because it's true, that all of us right now, if you're on the left, we are in a cluster B relationship. We have a role to play in this dynamic. And I'm asking people to choose to play a different role. Yeah, you know, you gave a very specific example of that on one of your recent shows in your interaction with NPR mm -hmm. and their description of Chelsea yes. Manning and, and you're objecting to their, <laughs> you know, maintaining that uh, he was a he and uh, instead of a she. And I, what I so appreciated about that was that, um, you know, when, when so hopefully we're all growing as as individuals we're learning things about ourselves and uh, you know it's not easy to admit uh especially when we see it uh, in ourselves that we that we've held certain uh biases and political correctness that we've been wrong it, it's it's hard but to come yeah. right out and give such a, a very spe specific example of of your you know, calling NPR out to task and doing that, what it affirms, I think, for your listeners and for me, is that, you know, we're not perfect. This is a process. It takes work. Yep. And, and it's, you know, it's just not easy to do. And, and that's okay, if, if the intention is to, um, is to see ourselves and to grow and to be better people. Yes. Um, you know, for anybody who's curious, uh, what he's talking about, uh, which I talked about on the show, is when I was a woke person, probably about six or seven years ago, I was a big part of the problem. 
I wrote a letter to Vermont Public Radio chastising them for calling Bradley Manning, who wants to be called Chelsea now. I chastised them for referring to him as he, because I was still doing the trans women are women thing. And they took me out to lunch. That's how seriously they took it. And I sat there and told them about how I thought they needed to be more inclusive. I mean, it's nauseating stuff. It's nauseating. But I believed it at the time. And I did do this. Can't take that back, right? Um, yeah, it's hard to be wrong, but it's not nearly as hard as people say that it's hard. I've noticed this over the past 10 years. It's, it's been for a while. You, you see this in public figures. Nobody wants to be wrong ever. So they do everything they can to justify what they did instead of admitting that they made a mistake. Mm -hmm. That's always been the case. Now it's on hyperdrive. I'm here to tell you, everybody listening or watching, no, it's not hard to be wrong to the pathological degree that you say it is and that you believe it is. We are convincing ourselves of something that is not true and that we knew wasn't true 10 years ago. Yes, it is embarrassing to me that I took those actions. Yes, I regret them. But I'm not crying over it. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to have a nervous breakdown over it. I'm not going to pretend it didn't happen. I'm going to tell you what happened why my thinking changed and take responsibility for what I did and try to do something different now. That's the problem. Everybody can do this. Every single person has the capacity to do this. I think we need to hold ourselves to higher standards. I think that's, that's a really good point, Josh, that it's, it's not as bad as you think it is. Um, we've, we did a show, we interviewed a, a romance novel uh, writer, author uh, named Mary Balog from Canada. Um, and one of the things about romance novels, I don't know if you've read any romance novels, is that in the, in the well, dynamic we them between something different among gay men, <laughs> in the dynamic between the, the, like, the, you know, the, the two, the, the man and the woman, the, you, there's things that go on like, in most of these novels where they just, they're afraid of saying something. They're afraid of admit, admitting the truth about something. And it's just it's just it's it's cliche but it's it's totally true at the same time in real life we're we're really held back by something that we perceive is going to be very painful and it's not going to work out it's going to it's it's just going to be hard and i think a lot of i think that not wanting to be wrong is partly that it's part of fearing something that actually isn't as scary as it turns out to be because like you said if people actually respond very well when you admit to being wrong and you apologize or you just be honest then people see that and they, they actually kind of, um, you gain a bit of respect in their eyes from being that forthcoming. And it ends up turning out in many situations better than, than you imagined by just uh, refusing to, to back down and by keeping it in. Yes, good points. There's a, uh, if you view that through the reverse, <clears throat> I'll, give a little, I'll give a little more credit and sympathy to people who feel that it's hard because I have to acknowledge that we are living in a high stakes society right now where people are actively looking to find your mistakes and they're actively looking to find them and use them to materially harm you. They want yeah. you fired and sometimes they're successful. They want you socially blackballed. They're very frequently successful in that. It is possible to make a mistake today and lose your entire friendship circle, um, not be welcome at school board meetings, not be welcome at church, um, be unhirable in your field. This is real. People do have something to be scared of. So uh, let me temper what I said a, a few minutes ago with that, with that knowledge. 
this is a consequence of the problem that many commentators, and they, they noticed it and said it long before I came onto the scene, noticed that woke ideology is religious. And in some ways it apes the structures, the moral structures of major religions like Christianity, but what separates it, what makes it quite, in my eyes, what makes it evil is there is no path to redemption. There's no moral grace. You cannot be a sinner and then be washed clean like you can in Christianity. Um, you have to continually abase yourself. You have to continue to do the work. You have to continue to grovel. You will never, never, never with the woke, you never win back your respectability place if you put a foot wrong. You will never have that back. So don't think that you will, because you won't. Um, you're on sufferance now. You're on borrowed time. Once they sent the mistake like blood in the water, they're going to find another one. You are going to be canceled. That's what's sick about it. Mm -hmm. you there know, is, um, because the purpose is to punish. Yeah, it has nothing to do with, you know, like you were talking about how it's so much better when, when you actually admit to your own failures. Uh, and I was going to say, like, add in the qualifier that you were just talking about, Josh, yeah, where in a real relationship it, with, yeah, in a real relationship with an actual normal person, they would appreciate the fact that you can be <laughs> humble and that you can, uh, you can admit to your own failings. Um, but in this situation where you're dealing with a, a group of cluster personality disordered people, like you say, it becomes a, a means by which they can manipulate and cajole you into doing the things they want you to do, because this isn't about, yep. uh, this isn't about anything they claim to, to say that this is about, this is about power dynamics and what they want is power over you. And so by admitting the failure and asking for their forgiveness because that's kind of the switch is if you ask for their forgiveness then you you are giving them the power that they are seeking however if you don't apologize to them for for something that's not really wrong because there's nothing wrong about it it's like a woman is a adult human female like i'm not going to apologize if someone gets offended for me saying that that's just the reality of things right um, so it doesn't matter what you, what you say or do, like if there's consequences to that, well, you know, then, then so be it, but I'm not going to, uh, play into this power game that this is all meant to be. Yes. Yeah. You're, you're absolutely right. It's, it is about power. It's about the power to punish. They don't want, there's, who is it who says this? I think it's, I think it's a, a, a lawyer, I believe he was also a social worker named Bill Eddy, who runs, uh, and I do recommend checking out um, his site. He runs a, uh, an organization called the High Conflict Institute. And their job is to help people through especially difficult professional situations with what they call high conflict people. That's their working language for what is usually cluster B, uh, pathological narcissism borderline personality disorder. And Bill says the issue is never the issue. And what he means by that is you can say, well, this is about racism, or this is about misogyny, or this is about queer rights. No, it's not. No, it's not. That is the wrapping and the flavoring to disguise the medicine underneath that they want you to swallow, the bitter medicine. And that bitter medicine is they want to control you. 
if BLM ideology doesn't work, they will switch to a different ideology. Maybe it'll become trans ideology. Maybe it'll become, um, uh, it, it does not matter. You, the, the purpose, the only purpose to this, and a lot of these people, many people are not aware of this consciously. Some of them absolutely are. The Machiavellian, the really psychopathic, narcissistic ones, they know what they're doing. But a lot of the people who are being flying monkeys for them and henchmen aren't conscious of this. They really do believe that they're doing something for this issue, but it isn't. The purpose is to punish and to have power over. That's it. So what do you do in a situation like that? Well, it's kind of the sort of thing that people come to about. On a high level, okay, if this is your social, and I realize that you can't just, if you're stuck in a job like this, you're in a pickle, right? And we can talk about that, um, but the answers are not gonna be easy ones. They're not gonna be the ones that you wish to hear. They're often going to be, yeah, you are gonna have to find another job, yes. Yeah, it's likely you are gonna get fired. Sometimes that's the case. Right now it's the case a lot. But if you are in a voluntary community, a social circle, a friendship grouping, where these dynamics are here, there, is only, there are only two options. This is not complicated. It doesn't take weeks and weeks of study. We can do it in a couple of minutes. Here are your two options, stay or go. That's it. Because it's not gonna change. There's no technique. I, I can teach you zero techniques to make unreasonable people reasonable. No human on earth can do that. I can teach you zero techniques to stop a cult dynamic among a larger group of people than you. You can, you can help peel people off. You can be there. You can reach a handout and friendship to people who are still there and say, if everything's changed for you, I'm still here. But there is zip, not a shit you can do uh, to change that cult. The only choice you have is to leave it. So if you are ready to talk about making difficult choices, we can talk. Um, what I cannot offer people, and I don't want them to hope for this and book a session with me thinking that they'll get it, I can't offer you any of those other things because they're not real. I can't make your mother reasonable. I can't make your father stop yelling and neither can you, it's not gonna happen. Do you, do you ever come across a situation where it might be a friend group and there's one person who's the problem and do you ever, do you ever, do you think it's ever possible for the normal friends to kind of come to an understanding and then eject the problematic person from their friend group? Like, could that be a third option in some situations? Possible. Yeah. It's certainly possible. Have you ever possible. seen it happen? It's, it's, it's hard to do. Have I ever seen it happen? Yeah. Yeah, I have. Um, I'm not sure that I know all of the conditions that have to come together to make that possible, but I can think of some off the top of my head. So, and, and you're, Harrison, this is a good example because that is frequently the case that there's one or in a small group, it might be one person, one borderline, one narcissist, one histrionic, right? And, and people with these, these personality disorders, remember, they're often, they often have very many attractive qualities too. They, have, they can have charisma. Um, they might be very smart. They may be artistically talented. Uh, they have methods, right? They, have, they can be charming. 
there's a reason why, there's probably a reason why you're friends with them and you don't see the dark side in the initial stages of that relationship. But it depends on how, it depends on the dispositions of the normal people around them. If you've got a group of people who are orbiting around a narcissist, chances are better that that group of normal people has some damage themselves. We all have some damage, some of us much more than others, but they may be, they may have grown up in a narcissistic family so that they see themselves as people pleasers and caretakers. They may be the sort of person who's very, very giving and says, I'm just going to keep doing what he says better until he, you know, that'll make him okay with me. You need to be able to talk to the people. If the friends in that group can, are able to hear another one of the normal friends say, guys, have you noticed this? It's making me really uncomfortable. I think I've noticed that that you're uncomfortable with it too. I don't wanna talk this person down, but I think we got a problem here. If you can get to that stage and you're talking with people who are willing to have that conversation, then yes, you all can decide not to, not to associate with that person anymore. Mm -hmm. Yes, it is possible and I've seen it. I'm not sure it's gonna go on a case by case basis, yeah. I think. Yeah, because oftentimes in those situations, the, like the, the one problem person will have several people wrapped around their little finger and mm -hmm. so when when you when you bring that up oh well you know have you noticed this about that other person then all of a sudden it gets flipped around to oh you're the one now that's gossiping and trying to sow division among the group Correct. and and then and then you're you'll be you'll then you become the black sheep and you become the scapegoat for whatever's going on so in that case it comes back to those two options. You either stay and you take it or you leave. But in some situations where yes. it hasn't developed, maybe there's a, maybe there's a chance to, but, but it, like you said, it depends on the situation. It depends what you have to work with. It yeah. depends how those other friends are in the situation. And same thing with a family, right? It's even harder in a family, but if there's, if there's, you know, one person and uh, well, like, cause you talk about this in your story with your mother and how you were one of your mother's like biggest defenders, right? And so yes. like if it, if it was your sister that was coming along and saying, oh, well, look at what, you know, what mother is, is doing. And, and like, you wouldn't have listened to that, you know, back then, would you have? No, not only would I not have listened, uh, I participated in abusing my sister along yeah. with my mother. Um, my sister and I are very close now uh, and, and neither of us speak to our mother, but we had to meet each other as adults fresh again for the first time. Mm -hmm. um, away from our mother to understand how we had participated in this dynamic. Yes, um, I was the flying monkey for my mother. I was the henchman. In some situations, in other situations, I wasn't. I wasn't. I acted villainously sometimes. Yes, but I wasn't a complete villain. I don't think. Um, yeah, that will happen if you if and if you if you encounter somebody who is really wrapped around the narcissist finger. You need to treat them as as dangerous as the narcissist herself. Okay, you're dealing with, in some senses, you're dealing with one entity sharing two bodies, right? Um, that person can come away and reform. I did, right? I've seen other people do it, right? But in the moment, in that time, if if you're dealing with that person, that person is also your opponent. They're your enemy. Um. And you, you need to know what they're capable of doing. Um, they will lie for the narcissist. 
they will triangulate, they, they can be verbally abusive uh, on behalf of the narcissist. So don't be surprised about that. It hurts, but, but, it, but it's a very frequent dynamic. Yeah, it's worth talking about on a case by case basis. Mm-hmm. That's why if I could, I wanna tell people the way that I like to bring clients in. I start out with it. It's a short intake form. It's not like when you, you know, because I'm not actually a real therapist, I'm not going to make you sit there or a doctor. You don't have to fill out like 16 reams of paperwork, but I ask you three questions. These three questions, I think are good. <coughs> Take this and ask them to yourself. You can use this in your own life quite independently of whether you ever talk to somebody like me. <coughs> I ask, number one, describe the situation. Describe it historically. Tell me what's going on. Who are the players? How long has it been going on? Next question. What have you done in the past? What approaches have you taken to try to ameliorate this situation? It could be anything. It could be I simply buckled under or I've tried to set hours that I'm willing to communicate with this person. Whatever it is, take an inventory, an honest inventory. Be honest with yourself. What have I done, positive or negative, to change the situation? And third, and probably most important, and you may not know the answer to this, and I say this in my intake form, um, I don't know is an acceptable answer as long as you promise that you thought about it first. What is your goal? What is your specific goal? That, the, here, here are some non-answers to that question. I want this to stop. That's not an answer. That's not what I'm asking. What is this and what does stopping mean? Get very specific. So you might say, well, I'll, I'll, I'll just give you some of the goals of some of the clients that I've worked with already. Um, I want to stop my mother from verbally abusing me. I want my parents to stop um, texting me 25 times a day and uh, demanding my presence and blah, 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 you know, whatever it is. Um, they may or may not be achievable or realistic goals, but I, I, I ask you to think a little bit deeper. I would guess that the, the real goal, as I think out loud, I'm realizing maybe I need to revise the way I'm thinking about this. Often the goals that you will have the first time you encounter some questions like this, the first time that you try to take such a relationship in hand and do something about it, your goals will often be unrealistic. You, will, you are going to want things that won't happen. What you want is you want your father not to have narcissistic personality disorder. That's what's underneath. I don't want to be yelled at. I don't want this. What you really mean is I want my father to be a person who he is not. I want my mother to be a different person than who she is, okay? And it's, it's, it's okay if, if that's your goal. If you can get to the place where you realize that that's what you really want, that's progress in and of itself. But unfortunately, that's not a goal that you can achieve. You're not going to change that other person. Um, and I don't know when people come to me and I tell them, you know, I take what you tell me in, on good faith. I assume that you are, you are accurately representing your life to me. It's all I have to go on, right? And I don't know you very well. I may have spoken to you, you know, by email or something, but I don't know you. And I certainly don't know the problem person in your life. 
So what I'm saying to you is I will give you my opinion of what I think may be going on and is likely to be going on on the proviso that I am forming that opinion based on your description. If other information came up that changed that, my opinion might be different. So we have to just make some assumptions and go on good faith. So I will say to somebody, yes, this does sound like cluster B behavior. It does sound like borderline personality disorder, but I can only be so certain, right? Because I'm not there. If, but if we proceed under the assumption that, okay, dad is a borderline, what do we do now? Our choices become more limited, but they become clearer. You are not going to change your dad's borderline personality disorder. What you can do is you can begin the process of setting boundaries and testing how well those boundaries work. So it, most of the people are, will not have done things like say, articulating to the problem person in their lives, I love you, but I will no longer take your phone calls during the workday. I will not answer your texts during the workday. I will not answer them after 9 p.m. These are my boundaries. They're not negotiable. I'm not asking you to do this. I am telling you what I will and will not do. This is going to be very, very hard in the beginning, especially if it's a parent or somebody else that you have a close emotional relationship with. It will feel unnatural because most of the people in this relation, if it's your parents, then you have spent your entire life um, in a subservient position. You've spent your entire life apologizing when you're not wrong so that the screaming will stop, um, reassuring mother over and over and over again that you don't hate her and you do love her. It's just that you simply can't afford to do what she wants you to do or your, your boss really does insist that you complete a full work day. It's crazy, right? But, um, but you have to practice it. And you'll find some people, I've seen cases where you can set some boundaries and although they will be challenged at some points, you will make some progress. And for some people, they'll be able to set a boundary and say, I need only, I don't wanna cut my father and my mother out of my life completely, but I need to have very limited contact with them because when I have more contact, I feel physically sick. I feel emotionally sick. I neglect my responsibilities to my children or to my wife or, or to my job, very common stuff. However, there will be many other people who will not respect any boundaries from you at all, never going to. We won't know that until you try to train them a little bit. And, and I will talk to people about trying to train people into boundaries. Um, but I, I would say to prospective clients, please come in open to possibilities that are upsetting to you. I know it's a big ask, but the answer may turn out to be, there is nothing to do but either continue accepting this or find a way to turn off any emotional response to it because the behavior is going to continue or leave. Mm -hmm. Well, I thought I'd just get back to um, a point you were making a little earlier, Josh, about um, the woke eating the woke. Because in one of your recent programs, uh, you were telling the story of this um, coffee shop, a queer coffee shop, as it was called, as it calls itself, called Mina's World. Queer coffee. <laughs> which was... Uh, 
run by a few business owners, one one of whom looked like a, a trans young man. And I think the other What is that what does that mean? I I always get confused. Does a trans young man mean a woman or a man? It was a young man who looked kind of like a woman. Okay. Yes. An actual biological male uh who presents himself to the world as if he were a woman and calls himself Kate. Okay. Yeah. So uh the the owners of this coffee shop were accused by some of their employees of not being inclusive enough and were making a list of demands as you pointed out uh which included partial ownership of the business uh you not know, partially <laughs> full <laughs> the, the, like give it to us you're not you're not you're not woken yes, yes quite literally give us the business and i you know and in this insanity, um, one of the one of the realizations that you uh, expressed was that, uh, and you mentioned it a little earlier, is that there is this kind of uh, woke feeding upon itself that suggests yeah. a um, you know taking it to another level uh, on a societal level uh, just from that one story, and maybe you maybe you can elaborate a little bit um, more on, on what happened there, that there is this, uh, this implication for, for societal destruction. If, if this same kind of mentality, uh, and it is obviously, uh, ex expands. Um, so I, I yes. yeah. Yeah, well, and yeah, it, it's a remarkable story. Um, it was on the show that aired this past Sunday. Uh, first, let's let's call the dynamic exactly what it is. This is an example of woke, but what this is is this is communist. It's Marxist and communist, literally. It's textbook communism. Um, you know, we the workers are forming a cooperative for our health and safety. We demand that you give up the capital and and turn it over to the workers. This is literally textbook Marxist communist stuff. Okay. It's poison because communism and Marxism are anti-human psychopathic ideologies. Uh, yes, I am saying that with no qualifications. And yes, I am saying there are no forms of communism or Marxism that are not that. They cannot be made cuddly. They are anti-human. They are for totalitarians. What especially young people don't understand because these these, these ideas seem utopian, especially to younger people, and they think, well, we really can remake humans, and we can remake the world, and we can all teach the world to sing in perfect harmony. You know, that's how people are coming to this, but it, that's not real. It, if you are participating, if this is your community, your economy, your social circle, and you are operating on these principles, you yourself are going to become the bourgeois pig sooner or later. You will be pushed up against the wall and either shot physically or put in the gulag or the social equivalent. No one in there is safe from that. You are not safe from it. And these young people are learning this right now because they opened up a coffee shop. I mean, for God's sake, we needed to have an inclusive coffee shop that really respected um, and valued the contributions of trans and people. What the fuck does that mean? Excuse me. 
What does this mean? This is insane. You sell coffee. Bitch, you sell coffee. You uh, that's that's what you do. That you sell cookies and coffee. This is already deranged. Okay. Nobody needs an inclusive coffee shop. It's just, it's absurd. But you get in there and you you hire people. Um, and I'm willing to go out on a limb here and speculate that none of these people would do a lick of work. They probably were there for eight hours and may have done 45 minutes of actual work. <laughs> and you're going to attract narcissists, you're going to attract histrionics, and you're going to attract emotionally unstable people who, who orbit around more powerful narcissistic people. And when they don't get their way, they're going to come for you. And that's exactly what they did to these two people. And who knows how this story is going to end up, but the ending, at least the, all the information I knew by the end of the show, was that these two young people, the owners of the business, they did a hostage video. They were like, this is Kate and Sonam. We are the owners and we're part of a radical accountability process to our employees. We realize that by opening Mina's World Cafe, and I'm doing the robot voice because that's how they were speaking. It's, it's, it's monotonic. We realized that we did harm. We put our black employees in harm's way. I mean, it's very creepy. It's very disturbing. Um, that's it. They buckled. They were like, yeah, and, and now we're in negotiations to turn the business over and raise, I don't know how they need to raise capital, but you know, that's enough of that example that it's always going to end up there always. Yeah. It, it's, um, um, but we can't count on the woke eating the woke to save us because usually that happens in the terminal phase of any mm -hmm. dynamic. All the damage has been done already. Yeah. It, it was, uh, it was quite sickening actually. And, um, but just an excellent reminder of how, uh, how, how destructive it is and how it threatens to, uh, if it persists at this level, um, just destroy the lives of a lot of people. But I do want to, I do want to mention your robot voice. And I do want to make the point, Josh, that I think you've actually gotten funnier since you started the show uh, a year and a half ago or so. <laughs> Uh, because I've watched the last few shows and I was laughing out loud at your impersonations. And I, I would say oh, that there are, <laughs> yes, you're very funny. There, there are two functions that get served when you're being funny. And, and this is for folks who've never watched Josh on Disaffected. One is you're hilarious and entertaining. Actually, three functions. <laughs> Thank you. The second, uh, as you know, you, you followed up this really awful um, tirade uh, by a, a person who was outraged by, by the Supreme Court's choice on uh, Roe versus Wade recently. You followed that uh, unhinged tirade with some jokes, which was very helpful because it was, it was disturbing to, to hear this person talk. So you, you know, your, your interjecting humor made, you know, listening to this person uh, a little more uh, easy. Uh, but the third reason is that what you do is you, uh, you really convey the cookie cutter, banal, uh, personality flawed, um, uh, two-dimensional 
uh, level at which many of these individuals exist with your impersonations, because, uh, you know, you, you made it black and white by just mentioning that the, that the two coffee owner, coffee shop owners are robotic, but, but by, you know, and, and so I don't know if it's spontaneous or you've kind of, you, you like know these personalities so well, you've like, you've like trained your mind to understand their makeup and their and their limited way of thinking and being that you're able to like regurgitate it and and make it really funny the voice has to come out every once in a while well at least yes. once a day right <laughs> <laughs> so i think it makes the subject and, and everything you cover much more palatable <laughs> yes yeah i know <laughs> so to say <laughs> people have said that i'm glad you enjoy it thank you for saying that i yes i i do try to be funny i enjoy making people crack up uh, honest to God, one of my primary goals in life, for, the first thing I care about is making myself crack up. Yes, I laugh at my own jokes. Yes, I write my jokes for me. <laughs> I, yes, I do. I'm not ashamed of that. I, I don't feel I don't feel bad that I laugh at my own jokes. I always have. I had to make my own fun in the world that I grew up in. Um, and I, I had a lot of time to observe a lot of people and a lot of their behaviors. I've been a mimic since sixth or seventh grade. Um, I started doing voice impersonations and impressions of people um, just before I started middle school. Um, but it just, it's so, it's, it's second nature to me now. Um, but I think that, you know, the show, it's, it, the show is, I didn't know where the show started. And if you go back and listen to, you know, the first couple of episodes were audio only, and then we moved to video. And I was really nervous about that. But Kevin, my friend and the producer, I mean, he's a media guy. He actually works in television media. He knows what he's talking about. He said, you got to do this. You know, we've got to do this. So we did it. But I'm I'm more reserved in the early episodes of the show. Um, I mean, I'm still pretty frank, I think. Um, but I, I'm less sort of performative. I've gotten more comfortable as time has gone on. Um, this isn't a plan. I, I haven't planned to take the show in a different direction. I just, I... I like to, this is basically how I approach every subject. I do this professionally too. I work in the nonprofit consumer education sector. Of course, of course, I'm not as raw and I don't use the F word and I don't cuss and swear as much in my professional, I don't do it at all in my professional life like the way I do on the show. Um, that's my show. I can do whatever I want and I am going to do whatever I want but I know how to have different voices in, in different places. But I have been doing this for, I've been doing public speaking and consumer education on difficult emotional and financial topics for 20 years. And I have always seen that if you can get people to laugh, you can get them to, their shoulders, their hunched shoulders will go down, they'll ease up, they'll realize that they're in a room with other human beings who are no better or worse than them, that life's absurdities are sometimes funny and grisly at the same time, and that it's not taboo to talk about the reality of a difficult situation. I find that people retain information and have a good time. If you have a good time, you will learn more. Uh, so this, you know, this is just the approach, to, you know, I'm not cut out for it's a good thing I'm doing this because 
I, I can't really do anything else. I mean, I, I, I cannot be straight laced completely. It's just not in my nature. No, that's a good thing. Um, I wanted to ask you know, something rang a bell um, in one of your previous answers. Have you ever seen the movie? It's a mad, 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 mad world. 1963. Oh, is that Mel Brooks? No, no, it's not but Mel it's Brooks. like that. Who is it? Um, I can't. Kramer, I think, is the is the director. Yeah, like S Stanley Kramer or something like that. If I've seen it, it's so long ago I don't remember it. So tell me, well, refresh me. I just I just watched it again. So the premise is kind of I think it's kind of like the the rat race. So these um, this guy gets in a car accident at the beginning of the beginning of the movie, and these four other drivers who are on the road with him. Um, like he get, like falls, he, he drives off a cliff and he's like taking his last breaths and he tells them, oh, you guys got to go down to, you know, Southern California because I've got a whole bunch of money there. You know, it's my money and I'm dying and I just want someone to have it. So there's like, you know, $300,000 or something down there. So of course, okay. these four different people who don't, four different cars, four different people, well, like six different people with different passengers, they all know about this money. And then the decision is how are they going to get it? Um, are they going to share it, et cetera? And so it's just a ridiculous um, race to to get to this money because, of course, they can't agree on how to share the shares. And but there's this one character played by Ethel Merman, who is um, <laughs> like um, the the typical like nasty mother, right? And so everyone hates her. There's there's tons of jokes at her expense just because she's a total yeah, total bitch like throughout the whole movie, and everyone knows it. And she's got this son that they end up calling, who is, um, who who only hears part of the conversation about what's going on, and all he gets from it is that, you know, one of these guys did something bad to his mama, and so he's this kind of butch, not very bright guy who then comes to save his mama from all these bad people, and I, I think I think if you rewatched it, you'd enjoy it because I know you like old films and it's uh it's it's good and it's mm -hmm. funny and that that dynamic between her and the rest of the characters and her and her son is actually a nice humorous representation of this dynamic like he's her flying monkey and and she's just huh? a, a total bitch in in just a, a hilarious way right so if you yes. um speaking of injecting humor into the the these kind Thank of Thank you. Macabre... I mean, Ethel Merman is a cluster B mother what's not to love? Yeah, and she plays it like in the <laughs> very well. <laughs> so, so yeah, check it out if you get a chance. Um, but thanks. I want I want to move on. I wanted to ask you about you did a, a few shows on this. You mentioned it in a few shows, and you did a few of your of just your audio only podcast on it. And it's on you. And you just did a a Substack post on it. So your Substack is disaffectedpod.substack.com. And this is the like the observation yep. you've made the correlation between like borderline personality and homosexuality and in your experience of um of of you know knowing a lot of homosexual guys and and seeing this correlation between like borderline mother and the and, and the and the gay son and i just wanted i, I could you just kind of get into that what kind of things have you observed and just kind sure. of state your thesis sure um I'm going to preface this a little bit. There are going to be people listening to this who are going to dislike this. This is going to make them emotionally uncomfortable. That's okay. I would ask people to understand that this is about asking questions and noticing correlations. I don't know that I'm completely right. 
but I'm seeing this already. I'm already getting pushback from subscribers on um, one of the platforms that I posted this on. And I understand it. I know where it comes from emotionally, but from gay people um, who are taking it personally and saying, you're trying to say that homosexuality is a mental illness again. No, I'm not trying to say anything. I, I never try to say anything. I simply say it. I don't have to try. I just say it. So I will tell you exactly what I think. There's no ulterior motive. I don't have a nefarious goal. This is not about anyone personally here. So if it does not describe you, it does not describe you. Having said that, um, I have noticed, and I, I'm convinced that this correlation is real. Um, no matter, I, I mean, every time I say it, I get people saying, but I'm not like that. Yeah, I know. I didn't say that 100% of people are like that. But no, um, I'm not going to abandon my observation here. I know that I'm seeing a real thing. It actually exists. The correlation is between men who grow up to be gay and in their, their family life had a mother who is either borderline or in the neighborhood of borderline personality disorder and a father who is either narcissistic and violent or passive, weak and enabling or entirely absent. So two dichotomous um, uh, ways of being. And yeah, I know it sounds strange. Well, how could how could the exact opposite kind of personality, you know, make the same thing happen in a kid? You can ask the same question of how narcissists are made. We there's plenty of of clinical evidence and evidence in the literature over decades that a child can grow up to become a clinical narcissist either by being overindulged and spoiled and emotionally neglected in some other ways, or by being directly abused and undervalued. Both of those diametrically opposed approaches can result in the same personality dysfunction. Um, in my life, and I yes, it's anecdotal. I'm not claiming it's not anecdotal. Um, in my life, of the gay men I've known, and I've known very many, obviously, of those I've known that I had any inkling at all about what their home life was like, what their past was like personally, professionally, or romantically. Um, there are only a small handful of men who do not fit this pattern. Almost all of them have had a borderline mother and either no father at all or the absent, passive, feckless, enabling father or the narcissistic and violent father. I brought this up to my therapist a couple of years ago and I asked him what that sounded like to, to him. My therapist is, I'm, I guess, in his 60s, straight guy, conservative. Um, and he said, in his life and career, he can only think of two gay men he's met who did not fit that pattern. And he said, I'm paraphrasing, but he said, this is an open secret in the mental health field. Everyone knows it's true. No one is allowed to say it. It's certainly not allowed to be researched. And it com that com is completely plausible and believable to me. Be All you have to do is, is watch me, notice me say this in an essay or a post, just look at the comments, look at the immediate pushback from gay people. And I would have been one of those people seven, eight years ago, I would have been doing the same thing. Born this way, born this way, born this way, la, 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 right? 
We invested so much of our self-image and our sense of, of our, our value in ourselves in, um, in the idea that this had to be genetic and had to be biological. Um, because if it wasn't, then that would mean it was a choice. And that would mean that we'd made a morally sinful choice. And that would mean that we were mentally ill and that's unacceptable. So born this way, born this way, born this way, born this way. I suspect that like most personality characteristics, that sexuality is influenced both by genetics and by childhood environment. Almost every characteristic that humans have, you can say that of. I don't have a very good sense. I, I could not numerically separate out percentages for you. I'm not even close. No one else is either. Working scientists aren't either. I can say that every attempt since the 1990s when this became popular to find the gay gene has been a failure. It has not, uh, the work is not able to be replicated. Uh, if you believe, listeners, if you believe that they found the gay gene because you remember when they were covering scientist Simon LeBay's um, work on this in the 1990s, you are mistaken. They did not find the gay gene. That's been discredited. Not discredited, but the work could not be replicated. They could not repeat his experiment and found what he found. This is the same for all such um, things. I think there's likely a biological component, a dispositional component in biology, and also a, uh, um, an effect of early childhood environment. And I think that that effect, yes, um, is, is from cluster B type parenting. So this brings up a lot of, there's a lot of implications there, right? They're just under the surface. So let me address them directly. Do I think that homosexuality is a mental illness? No, I do not. I do not think that the state of being attracted to your own sex is itself inherently pathological. I might change my mind. I've changed my mind about a lot of things, right? But no, that is not what I'm saying. I am saying that it appears to me right now that it is a frequent consequence of a certain family structure and perhaps a biological disposition. Yes, I am saying directly that I believe that child abuse probably has some causative effect on homosexuality. I am saying the very thing people hope I'm not saying, just to be clear. Um, that doesn't mean that I think the state of homosexuality itself is necessarily pathological or a sin. I'm not saying that. I don't feel like I'm a moral failure because I'm a gay man. I do suspect, however, that a great deal of why I'm a gay man had to do with my parents. Mm -hmm. This was, people like to talk about this being discredited. Well, we used to believe that like in the 50s and 60s, but we discredited it. No, it was never discredited. Freudians have known this for a long time and they're not wrong, I don't think. Um, it became politically unsayable. And in 1973, when gay activists finally successfully pressured the editors of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, uh, they successfully politically pressured them into taking homosexuality homosexuality out. Now, that may have been the scientifically right thing to do, but we don't know because this was not a scientific process. This was political pressure. Hmm. I'm sorry, I've gone on for, for a little while no. about that, <laughs> but that's no, what that's I think good. about I, that. I want to, uh, I think I want, yeah, I want to get into a few more things about that. Um, it's interesting when I think when I went to when I went to uh, university and took a psychology course, 
uh, we learned about imprinting, you know, so you know about like, like ducks and they'll, baby ducks will imprint on a, you know, a mother figure and it might be like a foot or, or they're the, the zookeeper or something. And, and, yep. but I, but I don't, I don't remember in school if I did, if I did learn it, I forgot it, but I, I don't remember learning about sexual imprinting. And it was only when reading this kind of fringe book by an anthropologist um, on, and it, it was like, uh, like this book about ancient aliens about, but it was written by a, an anthropologist. So it was a more kind of scientific take on some, some wacky theories, but he had this whole section mm -hmm. on animal sexual imprinting. I don't even know why it was in there. I can't remember, but so I just looked it up again recently. So I just, I'm just, I want to read a couple paragraphs from Wikipedia yeah, please do. on, I, this is on sexual imprinting. So sexual imprinting is the process by which a young animal learns the characteristics of a desirable mate. For example, male zebra finches appear to prefer mates with the appearance of the female bird that rears them rather than of the birth parent when they are different. Rather than that of the birth parent when they are different. Uh, oh, well, I'll keep reading. Sexual attraction to humans can develop in non-human mammals or birds as a result of sexual imprinting when reared from young by humans. One example is London Zoo female giant panda Chichi. When taken to Moscow Zoo for mating with the giant male panda Anan, she refused his attempts to mate with her, but made a full sexual self-presentation to a zookeeper. In commonly occur, it commonly occurs in falconry birds reared from hatchling by humans. Such birds are called imprints in falconry. When an imprint must be bred from them, the breeder lets the male bird copulate with their head while they are wearing a special hat with pockets on to catch the male bird's semen. The breeder then courts a suitable imprint female bird, offering, including offering food if it is part of that species' normal courtship. At copulation, the breeder pulls the flat of the of the one hand or puts the flat of one hand on the female bird's back to represent the weight of a male bird and with the other hand uses a oh, pipette yeah. or a hypodermic <laughs> syringe without a needle to squirt the semen into the female's female's cloaca. Is that how you pronounce that? Yeah, I've never cloaca. actually said that word. Um, cloaca. cloaca. It's a great word. Uh, sexual imprinting on inanimate objects is a popular theory concerning the development of sexual fetishism. Um, for example, according to this mm -hmm. theory, imprinting on shoes or boots would be the cause of shoe fetishism. And then they, on that same thing, there's a related idea, the, the Westermark effect, which is that um, people won't be sexually attracted to, um, to potential mates that they grew up with, like in the first six years, for instance. And they, so the, yeah. the Wikipedia article cites this, um, this study that was done on one of the Israeli kibbutzes where there's like 300 people living in close proximity. And so all the kids are raised together as like one big family. And then they tracked these kids, um, you know, as they grew up and saw, and, and, you know, looked at who they, who they married, who they ended up having children with. And, um, and basically a tiny percentage of these kids ended up actually marrying people from their same, you know, that peer group and the ones that did, didn't know each other. They weren't actually raised close with each other. Yeah. So like, of, of course, because everybody else felt like a brother and sister, it's nasty incest. Right. right. So yeah. it seems like there are these, um, and I've never anywhere seen anything about normal human sexuality being at all, you know, um, influenced by this imprinting idea, like that maybe there's an imprinting phase in, in humans, and you know that kind of determines the kind of mates we look for, and and even the the sex of the of the people we're attracted to. 
isn't that interesting? And doesn't it parallel the very same objections to evolutionary psychology, right? So mammals share all these characteristics and mammals can be trained to do all these things and evolution shaped the psychology and the instincts and the predator or prey behavior of every single creature on earth except humans. Our bodies evolved, but evolution had no effect on our brains and our thinking at all. The same kind of, the kind of sexual dimorphism in psychology that we see in other mammals is not happening in humans. We only evolved from the neck down. It's the same objection. <laughs> it's exactly the same objection, right? Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, I don't know if this happens in humans, but what you just described to me, I think it is more likely that something like this is going on in humans than it is not likely to be happening. But I think we know the reason why no one is researching it, don't we? Yeah. And it's just so strange that it's never like the, the fact that I didn't even know that sexual imprinting was a thing, even though I knew about imprinting from going to school. And um, I didn't know it was a thing either. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's strange. And but that what was really interesting is then one of those first sentences that the, the male zebra finches appear to prefer mates with the appearance of the female bird that rears them. So that there's. Appearance so well the the dynamic i see here that maybe maybe able to be applied to humans in some way is that basically um a, a child's mother will in some way determine you know their sexual preferences um maybe not in terms of like homosexuality or sexuality but maybe but even the type mm -hmm. of personality and, and the or the looks that uh, that you end up being attracted to like i don't know if anyone has done research on this in, in humans but that there will that there might be an effect of the you know the person's the the child's mother and or father on how their sexuality mm -hmm. develops and father yeah yeah it makes it makes perfect sense to me i was just having an, an informal conversation a couple of weeks ago on facebook with some friends about a similar situation talking about um you know i i don't know the the literature on this but it's we know that this happens there is a measurable degree to which humans appear to sexually prefer in a mate somebody who physically resembles um, the parent of the sex they are attracted to. So I was talking with one woman who said, yeah, I mean, I end up, uh, you know, I dated and end up marrying a man who has blonde hair and gray eyes like my father, tall like my father. I've, you know, you see it in men too, who pick women uh, who in some way uh, resemble their mother. Doesn't mean that you're attracted to your mother or father, um, but this, this is too common not to be connected. Mm -hmm. uh, so that, you know, it, it certainly makes sense to me that that, that could be going on. Um, well, and then there's, I, oh, no, go ahead, think. <laughs> yeah, I, I lost it, whatever it was, you go ahead. Well, so this is slightly different, but you've, all, you've often commented on your own and kind of gay culture in the 80s and in, in the 80s and 90s in general, like the icons of gay culture, right, with the, the, um, Right. Okay. Go with it. <laughs> Tell people what I'm thinking. That's, that's, you got it. That's what flew out of my head. Thank you, Harrison. So um, gay men have icons, right? Uh, stars that they love. And this is not, I mean, 80s and 90s. Yeah, that's my generation. But this was going on well before that. Gay men were worshiping opera divas in the 30s and 40s. This is, you know, not something that just happened um, when I was born. Gay men like cluster B women. 
Look at the pantheon of female celebrity icons that gay men worship. What you find, I don't think all of them are cluster B, but I think they're all in that neighborhood. In some, they all have a quality to them. It might be a tragic quality, like a Judy Garland, you know, who, or uh, Marilyn Monroe. Uh, Marilyn Monroe, this pisses people off. Well, not as badly as when I talk about Diana Spencer, Princess of Wales, but Marilyn Monroe had borderline personality disorder. People get extraordinarily, women get extraordinarily angry at hearing that. But she was so sweet and she was so blah, 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 and I love her and blah, blah, blah. I'm not saying she wasn't sweet, didn't have lovable characteristics. And she didn't, she doesn't appear to have been predatory. She appears to be the kind of wafy um, little girl borderline. But she was, I mean, why the hell do you think she got fired from so many films? She was a nightmare to work with. She was desperately insecure, hooked on drugs, um, really looking for a father figure in every director she had, um, had a hard time not romanticizing and sexualizing her professional relationships with older men. You know, it's, it's, I'm not insulting the woman, but you know, she had borderline personality disorder. Um, something like that was probably going on for Judy Garland as well. I mean, look at look at the way the star system eats these people up, right? I mean, they're abused from the moment they come in there, especially when they come in young. Um, Joan Crawford, alcoholic, borderline, and narcissist. Betty Davis, at least uh, an alcoholic, and um, you know maybe more. Uh, Madonna you know, one of my personal favorites. I mean, th that woman is is probably the best walking example of having traits of all four, almost all four cluster B <laughs> disorders herself, right? Cher, um, I like Cher too, but you can see the narcissism, right? <laughs> Look at all of this. Don't tell me there's no connection here. People are like, well, that's gay icons. Yeah, but why are they gay men's icons? Why are gay men consistently attracted to women of a certain psychological type with charisma and beauty and danger? Don't tell me that has nothing to do with mommy. Come on. Mm -hmm. Did, this was interesting to me listening to your show because um, like when I was in junior high and high school, in junior high, it turned out my best friend was gay. You know, I didn't know when, when we first became friends, then he eventually came out. Same thing happened in, um, or one of my friends in high school. Until you woke up and he was on top of you. Creeping up on you from behind. No, but, so this first friend of mine in junior high, um, I don't know, this might be, um, this might be, um, what's the, what would be the phrase? Behind your time? Ahead of your time? Or... Um, but did you ever see the show Rugrats? It was a cartoon. Uh, that was after like, my time. I, I'm yeah. aware of it. It's yeah, yeah. It's a kids show, right? So, Isn't there some right, really kids mean girl on it? Right. So there's this. It's a kids show with uh, like their babies, like infants. So they're they're going around having fun and adventures. And there's an older girl who's probably I don't know six, Angelica, who's just a pure demon. Like she is a total villain. Mm -hmm. Um, so watching this show, I loved Rugrats when I was a kid, but Angelica, I just hated her. She was, she was a, a great villain for being just a six-year-old bitch, like just totally evil. And I know exactly my friend, what you're going to say next. Right, exactly. My friend, my friend adored her favorite character. He loved Angelica and I just couldn't understand. I was like, how can you, 
she's so evil. I hate her. And he, he just adored her, loved her. And um, yeah, I could never understand it until finally I was listening to one of your shows and, uh, and you talked about it. And the same thing, it's like, it's a similar thing with, uh, well, maybe not, but um, there's overlap with this idea or this image of the, the, the Disney villainess. Right. That's kind of, yes, she was kind of like a Disney exactly villainess without, thing. without the makeup. Right. She didn't have time to develop that kind of that uh, mature yes. style, but same thing. Absolutely. The same thing. I'm I, what a wonderful anecdote. It reminds me of, well, it reminds me of conversation, a confrontation with my mother when I was about seven or eight years old, I was a big fan of little house on the prairie. Uh, and we watched, well, we watched the show when it was on the air, but then it immediately went into syndication. So I watched all the reruns. Nellie Olson. My favorite character was Nellie Olson, <laughs> right? Uh, the blonde girl with the ringlet. She was the rich girl in town. She was an absolute bitch brat. Um, I, I loved her. I, she always had the best lines. Um, she was just, you know, fabulous. And my mother was very <laughs> upset with me. No, genuinely upset. Um, Joshua Slocum, you love that Nellie Olson character. She is the worst one on the show. What is wrong with you? You need to have better role models. <laughs> <laughs> this is my mother speaking, remember? <laughs> the woman who I describe as a cross between a trailer court Joan Crawford and uh, Carrie's mother in the movie Carrie. Um, yeah, I, I, this happens a lot. Um, Young, gay boys like mean girls and gay boys want to be mean girls too. Very common. I wanted to be a mean girl. I was a mean girl for a while. There's, yeah, there's a connection. There are connections there. I haven't teased out exactly what they are, but I do think this is all connected in some way. And I, I find it fascinating. I know it's threatening to people when it's new to them, but after, after it's not new anymore, it's not as threatening, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Is uh, Hillary Clinton a uh, an icon for gay men? Oh, she God, would be, no. though. Look at her. <laughs> the pantsuit. Are you looking at the same person? <clears throat> what about Hillary Clinton like 30 years ago? I mean, I, I used to admire Hillary Clinton before I understood the darkness of her character. Um, but I, I'm not sure she, there's, she lacks an intangible quality that is necessary to yeah. be a gay icon. I don't know what it is, but she doesn't have it. No. She, yeah, she lacks the drama, like the, uh, um, what would it She's be? She's not the, charismatic. The charisma. Yeah. The charisma. Mm. She has, she has no charisma. She's, she's often, she's more abrasive and unpleasant. Now, a lot of these people are abrasive and unpleasant, but charisma goes a long way. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. and, you know, you look at somebody like, well, I'll use my favorite example. Look at Madonna. Um, if you, you know, if you watch her, if you see her in interviews, if you observe her in the way she, you know, I've spent my whole life watching her. Um, she's, she's bit, she's a bitch. She's cold. Um, she affects to really like people, but she uses friends and men and then she dumps and discards them. Uh, she says extremely cutting things about people behind their back and sometimes in front of their faces. Um, she's mean, um, but she is incredibly charismatic. 
even people who don't like her or never, they recognize that she has innate charisma. There is a reason she became the most famous woman in the world for so long. And it, right. it doesn't mean that you have to like her. It doesn't mean that you have to think that she's an artist. It doesn't mean that you think any of that, but she does have that innate quality of charisma. Joan Crawford had that level of charisma. Um, Judy Garland had a different kind of charisma, but she had charisma. Edith Piaf had charisma. Ethel Merman had charisma. That seems to be a necessary quality. Although when you look at the younger generation, maybe it's not so necessary anymore. I mean, because the modern gay idols, I know I would say this because I'm old now, but I'm like, her? <laughs> Like I could, I could get her on a two for one sale at Claire's at the mall. You know, what's special about her? Who are some of the modern, like gay idols for young, young gay guys? Do you even know? Like would Lady Gaga, would like, who's just Lady a, Gaga, that's a, a mimeograph copy of Madonna. Um, mm. uh, a lot of gay men were really, really, really into Britney Spears. Uh, I, I know, not modern, but modern compared to me, yeah. okay? That was a generation yeah. Yeah. after me. I was already a grown man when Britney Spears was, you know, doing her thing. I, I don't dislike her, but she's, I, I don't think she's a performer on the level of a Cher or a Madonna or, a, you know, a Bruce Springsteen or, you know, somebody who really has that, yeah. you know, sort of thing. Um, Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I think the pickings are slimmer today, frankly. I think yeah. that there, there, are, there are fewer people with real drive and talent out there and more people who are helped along by a lot of manufactured buzz. That's always been the case, of course, uh, in Hollywood and in the music industry, but the standards are going down and going down and going down. Yeah, there, there aren't as many stars, like, you know, with a capital S. There aren't, we don't have stars like we used to. Yeah. Yeah, you know? that's interesting. Well, this, uh, I'm, I'm interested or I'm, I'm glad that you put everything the way that you did, because like similar to, uh, Harrison's anecdote, um, like I, I worked at Abercrombie and Fritch for a couple of years and there was a lot of gay guys that work there. And like at night when we would be like changing, uh, like all of the posters and like rearranging all the clothes and everything like that, um, it would be like me and and then, and then like a couple of guys. a couple of women and then and Lance. Like, uh, like eight <laughs> eight different gay dudes and they would all be playing like Lady Gaga and and just you know they'd all be going to town and I was just like what is it about this music that that just has you all so entranced I don't understand it's not that good she's not great she's kind of annoying in a lot of ways um and it was like that for Lady Gaga and uh, there was one or two others that I can't remember their their names off the top of my head, but but it was some it was something that stuck in my mind as being like what like why why is it that that there is this like communal attraction to this type of personality? So when you when you kind of came out it, with this this whole thing, it was like, well, duh. It's I think at root one of the roots of it is. Gay men are attracted to narcissism. They are. They are. 
and yeah, I think it has a lot to do with our, with our mothers. There's something compelling to us about ballsy, aggressive women, women who sometimes are described as taking a male approach to their sexuality. Rather than being a sex kitten, they're a lioness on the prowl, right? Um, Lady Gaga, you know, there's something about that, the hardness of the makeup, the, the conscious affectation of glamour. These are attractive to gay men. I don't know all the reasons for that, but that, that type, that type of performer will reliably attract a gay male audience. I don't know all the different pieces that go together, but yeah, I think it is all bound up in the dynamics that we're talking about here. I, you know, I mean, if I, if I had, if somebody could give me like two or three years and pay all my bills and say, you're going to go and research this, you're going to get into the literature. I'd love to do an, an in-depth actual psychological and cultural investigation of this because it has not been done. That work, no one has done that work. Very few people will even ask that question. The kind of people who will bring this up are people like Camille Paglia, but she's one of the only people who will talk about stuff like this. Yeah. Well, that moves me on to something, something else that might be even more controversial. So we'll see, how, we'll see where this goes. <laughs> but um, um, first, Josh, you may or may not be familiar with Hervé Cleckley. He wrote The Mask of Sanity, which is the, it was the first book on psychopathy, like the first major book on psychopathy. It kind of de defined psychopathy for, um, for, for how we think about it today. I, I, I'm aware of the book and the title. Yeah. I wasn't aware of the author's name. Right. So Hervé Cleckley, he wrote another book called The Caricature of Love. Now, I, I read a retrospective on Cleckley recently um, that said that he actually considered this book, Caricature of Love, his, his masterpiece. But it was kind of unfortunate because it was about what he called like pathologic sexuality. And so he talked a lot about homosexuality. And so it kind of, it went out of date, right? You know, the times changed. And so the book was never reprinted. Everyone forgot about it and kind of ignored it. I think and, I need to read it. Well, I, I want to read a, a section from it because it's it's really interesting. It's not just about homosexuality. He doesn't actually offer a theory for for where, where sexuality comes from, how it, how it develops. He just says, here's well, in the parts about homosexuality, he says, well, here's my experience with um, like the homosexuals I've dealt with. And he's got, it's really interesting for other reasons too, because he talks about uh, like sadism and and the, the link between sadism and literature. So you look at the, the, the actual sadists like Marquis de Sade and then all of his followers and all this kind of like literature that gets into the, like the dark and the perverse and looking at that mentality behind, yes. like the mentality behind that. Yes. So it's a really interesting book from that perspective. But uh, I, I remembered reading this, I read the book probably over 10 years ago, and this part stuck in my mind, so I just went to find it. Um, so this, I want to read you something, um, a couple excerpts from it, and it's about homosexual, like homosexuals in relationships. And the, and this is why he called it the, the book caricature of love, because he was talking about the, about relationships that seem to lack, like, love. And so I wanted to get get your impression and maybe see how much of this might have been just a product of the times because he was writing this in like, I think 1957. So this was like a generation before before you. Um, so yep. he writes a striking a striking example is afforded by the relations between two brilliant, technically trained men, men of almost 30, who are both instructors in a metropolitan university. For months, these two have engaged in abnormal sex practices together 
a product of the times. <laughs> um, they consider themselves lovers, and each has avowed that only from the other has he been offered real understanding or anything else that makes life worth living. Eloquently and articulately, they protest their love for each other, quoting the poets of all times and nations, ascribing to each other physical charms more consistent, more consistent with such mythological sirens as Helen of Troy or the pagan goddess Astarte than with the masculine actualities. They philosophize about the rare nature of their oneness, the pure honesty of their love, the spiritual development each has induced in the other. Despite such avowals, however, in actuality, they carp at and deride each other, fly into pouts of distrust and recrimination. Neither can refrain from hurting and frustrating his alleged mate. No issue is too trivial to serve as grounds for pretext for a quarrel. Each quarrel leads to petulant rages and vociferous accusations, eventually to silent and sulking despairs. Outlandish and even impossible pranks of infidelity, with busboys, bellhops, letter carriers, and so on, are imagined by each one whenever the, out, the other is out at night. Out of sight. Wrangles over alleged and real acts of unfaithfulness drive one or the other out into the night. Whence he eventually returns, sometimes to open arms, sometimes to cold scorn, or to new sarcastic demands for proof of good behavior during the absence. They abase themselves of each other as if to demigods, but soon either may be railing at his idol as a bitch, a slut, or a whorish queen. They boast pitifully of their union as a beautiful, clean relation and think of it as rare, if not unique. When separated, they write notes to each other capriciously com confessing sexual activity with others and driving one another into despairs and rages of impotent jealousy. jealousy. After a recent quarrel about sundry infidelities, one of these intellectuals was beaten up in the streets and seriously injured by some man in a slum whom he accosted and sought to engage in perverse activities. The other, the other of the enamored pair, meanwhile, was arrested in a tourist camp for attempting to carry out on a 12-year-old boy, despite the child's refusal, what the legal charge described as, quote, a detestable and, ab and, an ab an attestable and abominable act against nature. So of course he it sounds like he's picking like the worst case out of <laughs> out of the ones he knows about but um there's one short paragraph from a different section but um I just wanted to know like is that the dynamic that you've that you see or how like how rare is that now or how common is that now that 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 it's dynamic It's not rare at all. Guys? It's yeah. not rare at all. Yes, that sounds very familiar to me. Uh yes, he is he is a product of his time. Uh, and yes, he picked an extreme example. We're, you know, uh, we're talking about a guy who's actually a pedophile too. Yeah. yeah. Um, leaving that aside, this sounds like so many gay men I've known. Yes. Um, I, I'm still working. I, I'm working on another hypothesis. I'm not even sure that I'm going to get into any detail on it because I'm, I'm uncertain of it, but... <coughs> Here's the, here's the reality. The way gay people talk about our lives is often just propaganda. I know very, very few gay male couples, even those who are legally married and even those who lived in ways that indicated they were married before that was legal. I know very few of them who are monogamous. Some, almost all of them, almost all are either open, voluntary open relationships, but the, the voluntary nature of that is questionable. 
uh, because there is always jealousy, always jealousy. Um, some of them, many of them, um, it, is, it hasn't necessarily been talked about, but one or both of them is screwing around on the other all the time. That description of the, I love you, I love you, I love you, oh, you bitch, you whore, you sarcastic queen, what does that sound like? It sounds like borderline personality disorder, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, another thing people don't like to talk about is that the rate of mental illness and, and I'm using these separately, rate of mental illness and the rate of personality disorders among homosexuals is at least double that of the background population. You will, you will find this in literature. You have to go back to some older literature. And no, no, because it's older doesn't mean it was all bigoted. People used to be able to tell the truth about things they saw. Um, they cannot tell the truth about them now in our current social regime. The rate of drug and alcohol addiction, personality disorders, and unresolved trauma in homosexuals is sky high, sky high. If you get, I don't remember, I, I've seen some numbers on this, but some of this, I have to do some extrapolation. Um, so I don't know how accurate it is, but we know that the majority of people diagnosed with borderline personality are women. So about 75% of diagnosed cases, and, and there's a lot more that aren't diagnosed than are diagnosed. About 75% of them are women and 25, about 25% are men. Most of the men are gay. Hmm. If a gay man is going to go cluster B, he's more likely, well, I mean, I've, I've known a lot of nar almost pure narcissist gay men. I've known so many gay men with something in the neighborhood of borderline or histrionic personality disorder. I was such a person. Um, never formally diagnosed, but I strongly suspect in my teens and 20s that I would have qualified for a borderline or histrionic personality uh, disorder diagnosis. Um, and I still have traits, um, uh, but but time does help, and and you know people can grow. It's it's a real problem. I I talk to this. I have a small circle of gay male friends right now. A very small circle. It will never be a big circle. <laughs> gay men have to meet a higher standard for me to put them in my social circle than straight people do. I mistrust them more. I make them jump through more hoops in my mind. When I meet another gay person, my defenses are up immediately. I do not trust gay men because I know us and I know how we are. It's very difficult. We have a lot of problems relating to each other socially because there is always the unspoken sexual tension that cannot be gotten rid of. Now, of course, there are many gay men who are not attracted to each other and who remain friends. I'm not saying that that doesn't happen, mm -hmm. but it's always a question. And gay men, and I have been, I have been this person too. I have been the bitchy one who pushed other people away and was mean to another gay man because I felt insecure. I've done this too. I've had it done to me. This is how we are. 
it's very difficult to negotiate. You don't know, you see somebody who shares so many characteristics with you and you think you can have a meaningful friendship with them. You yearn for that connection with someone else who understands, yet you're afraid of them. You're jealous of them. Are they hotter than you are? Are they younger than you are? But you're also afraid. When I walk out of the room, is he gonna talk me down to all those other queens in there? Am I gonna become the butt of a joke? It's constantly there, it's always there. And it's there for a reason. And it's because we have some psychological problems that we don't talk about. <clears throat> and well, I think that there's a there's a bigger general issue that I think that that um, that that's kind of embedded in, and that's just uh, if if we if we leave aside the like sexuality, and just look at parent you know parent child dynamics, um, you know I I don't I don't think I've read studies on this, but I think it's probably safe to say that borderline parents are more likely to produce borderline children and you know narcissistic Correct. parents are mo more likely to produce narcissistic narcissistic children not necessarily for reasons of genetics but that's probably a part a part of it but uh, again it's kind of like this form of imprinting where uh, where yes. that that style well lobachevsky describes this in in Ponderology. it's like there's a, a certain like um cognitive style cognitive emotional style that when you're growing up and that's all you have, your mind kind of shapes itself in that direction in, in, to, to conform to that. You have to just shape. survive. Right. And so you have to do that to survive. Yes. So you have this, it's almost like this transgenerational thing where the, 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 the mother passes on her borderline traits to, to her son or to her daughter. And so you yep. see that in, in your own life and, and, um, or where was I going to go with that? Well, so with the, with homosexuality, if there is this connection, this correlation with with borderline mothers, then we we can perhaps even disentangle strict sexuality, like you were doing earlier, like attraction to to people of the same sex, with a, like a, um, a a psychopathological component that might just be highly correlated with it to some degree, where where you will have these these borderline traits that are that just happen to be correlated with it, maybe because that because there's there might be some similar causal source, but it doesn't necessarily mean they're intrinsically linked. Right. So it's not like yeah. it's not like I'd be saying that, oh, well, homosexuality is just a form of, you know, borderline personality disorder. No, no and I don't I don't right? think it is. But 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 I do think they 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 travel on the same delivery truck. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you know, they're not intrinsically yeah. linked, but they happen to travel together a lot of the time. Right. And so I think that's kind of what what uh, Cleckley was was uh, was seeing in his patients, um, and so pr probably uh, you know for being a product of his time, he saw he saw them as probably more linked than they actually are. But um, mm. but 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 that's what he was seeing. He was seeing the borderline dynamics. He just didn't call it that. And and I so why. And, and well, I don't think border borderline was not the right. was not the descriptor in those days. Okay, right. I don't think that. Yeah, they didn't like borderline back then was used for like you know borderline psychoticism so like um, right right so i don't think they had a they had a category like a you know a personality disorder to describe that really maybe i'd have to look in i can't i can't remember the my history of personality disorders that, that yeah. well at this, at this time but i'll read that just the one last paragraph where he kind of sums it up yes. um 
so he's talking about relationships, um, homosexual relationships. Oh, and well, I haven't even talked, we haven't talked about this yet is um, lesbians. And if you've seen like, because um, just from the few things I, I found when I was when I was searching in, in Cleckley, it sounds like he, he thinks similar things about about lesbian relationships. But um, I don't I don't remember if he talked that much. So about do them. I. There's some differences, yeah. but I do think it extends to lesbians as well. Yeah. So, well, I'll read this last paragraph. So he says, all this is relationships. However, experience or all, however, according to my experience, fall short of love or major fulfillment. Like those portrayed in the novels, because he he's just gone through you know a bunch of novels depicting um, um, you know gay relationships and just all kinds of different you know types of you know non heterosexual sexuality. Um, so like those portrayed in the novels, all are marked by fierce or petty contradictions of desire and spite, praise and derision, sensuousness sensuousness and boredom, extravagances of endearment hybridized with glib or bitter mockery. The widely differing patterns of unhappiness described in these novels, like those observed in the lives of my patients, are patterns of unhappiness or of exquisitely cynical superficiality in relation to what is erotic. When sorrows and frustrations of major proportion are less prominent, the results of such a union are still rich in petty torments of disdain and jealousy that often extend beyond the borders of absurdity. So that was his summary of, you know, specifically of the novels that that he talks about. So, you know, he's talking about certain certain authors. Well, and, and I think it's novels. also true. A lot of that is true in re in real life as well. Yeah. Um, if it's true, if it's true, let's say, let's say that homosexuality is not intrinsically linked to having a personality disorder, right? And I don't mm -hmm. think that it necessarily is. Although I think there is a strong correlation. Um, if that's true, then uh, I've got so many threads going at the same time. Um, if it's true that, that what I'm noticing is real, that it's highly likely that a grown homosexual man will have had um, a cluster B environment to grow up in, then no child who grows up in a household like that gets out of it undamaged. All of us develop scars and wounds, and most of them are somewhat deeper than the normal scars and wounds that, that most people have. They're, they're more severe. Child abuse is more severe than non-child abuse, right? That you're talking about people who are, who are coming out of the gate walking wounded right? They're already behind the curve. They already have handicaps. Mm -hmm. Do you hear anybody talking about this? No. Gay people are just like everybody else. We're just exactly the same. We have the same this, that, and the other thing. We're no more likely to be killers or saints or anything. We're exactly like everybody else. No, we're not. No, we're not. And that doesn't mean we're bad or defective, but pretending that we are just like everybody else and that we don't have Statistical correlations with early childhood abuse and the ongoing psychological trauma is not serving us. It's not serving us. This is why so many of us are unhappy, drug addicts, drunks, suicidals, borderlines. Mm -hmm. 
we have never grown up. Gay people have never grown up. We're still stuck in Peter Pan syndrome. And we think if we keep lying to ourselves and lying to other people about how wonderful and stable we are and how there's nothing in our lives that's any different than, than any other person, we're never gonna grow up. I don't know all the answers. And in 10 years, if we come back to this conversation, maybe I will have learned some things that strongly changed my mind. Maybe I'll even repudiate some of the things I'm saying today if I learn differently. But I'm telling you in good faith that I believe these things today to be largely true. And it, it bothers me. And because I know I'm old enough now, I've seen enough in the past that I know what's gonna happen. I'm not going to live to see this change. This conversation isn't gonna change in my, among gay people during my lifetime. I'm not going to see it. It's disappointing and it's saddening to me because the things that, these aren't happy things to think about. They're heavy things. And for example, I'm celibate. I'm single and celibate by choice. I used to be as promiscuous as any average gay man when I was younger. <clears throat> it damaged me. I started out with damage and then I re-damaged myself over and over and over again by living a, a sexually dangerous and psychologically dangerous life. I would, be, I would have been horrified, angry, and probably had an actual temper tantrum if anyone had suggested the things I'm saying to me 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago. And in fact, I would have been convinced that it couldn't be true because if it were true, I'd just have to kill myself because it would be too horrible to live in the world knowing that this was true because it would mean that yes, I was actually born bad. I was born evil and bad and screwed up, my, which is my deepest fear. Um, but that's not how it turned out. I'm 47 years old and these are not happy things to contemplate, but I'm not suicidal. I don't want to end my life. Um, I'm not, you know, I somehow bear up every day. Life has a lot of dark things to it. And I believe that I see more clearly now the ways that it's possible for me to go wrong why I went wrong the way I did, why people around, why I attracted and nurtured people who went wrong in certain ways. I wish I'd known these things a long time ago. It's not easy knowledge, it is heavy knowledge, but, but it's bearable knowledge and it's not suicidally depressing. I don't know what else to say. Jump in, I guess, back. if anybody's listening, yeah. jump in. Kind of comes back to what we were saying near the beginning of the conversation about um, blowing things out of proportion, like catastrophizing. Um, yes, you know, like it's it's not as bad as you think it is, or you know, like um, to actually because really what what you're how to describe this um, when you're in a bad situation when things are going wrong in some way, like if your if your relationships aren't working things aren't going to get better unless you kind of actually realize that and just like people aren't going to come to you for come to you to advice unless they first realize what the like the the outlines of the dynamic that they're in with with some with yes. uh you know if they're if they're already in if they're still in um uh, flying monkey you know syndrome land they're not going to be coming to you they're right? not even but, to think of coming to a person right. to talk about it no right so so because they don't think anything's wrong right so there's that first step of you know thinking that well maybe maybe something's actually wrong or and not wrong with me like as a as a person on a deep level but 
there are some things that, you know, that aren't going right. And maybe if I just confront them directly and look at them, maybe things can actually be better than what they are now. Maybe I won't be in such, um, you know, such miserable relationships. Maybe I can do something about that. Um, yeah. Because I think that, um, like you, like you said, it's not just, you know, when we're having this conversation about these dynamics, it's not just homosexuals. Um, because I'm sure there are plenty of relationships between men and women that are, you know, that are like, you know, that, that are comparable in, yes. in nature to the ones I just described, you know, reading from Kleckner's Absolutely. Book, right? Yep. So. Absolutely. We can, I think it's, we can less, it's less to do with sexuality and, and more to do, more to do with early childhood attachment, development, and trauma. Mm-hmm. Whether you whether you end up being heterosexual or homosexual, the commonality is is cluster B and the effects of cluster B on a child's personality organization and ability to attach. I believe that is what's at the root of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, there, there's a, another component to this, I think, and that is, um, and it speaks to how unhealthy uh, a lot of the um, gay movement would appear to be right now. And that is the well, the need to uh, request or or demand or desire validation from outside of oneself. And really yep. quickly, are you talking about actual gay movement or like the all inclusive LGBTQ plus? Maybe a bit of both. Hmm. Um, I mean, yeah. obviously, if 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 laws, you know, there there were probably some there were some pretty bad laws on the books that that needed correcting, yep. but. Uh, going in the other direction and and making uh, such a show of demanding from society an, an acceptance that really has to be done from within in, in the way that you Correct. describe, Josh, um, and which can only be done uh, by doing work on oneself. Uh, you know, the, and and the, you know, the, the, the tragedy of it would seem to be that that everything in our culture and our society right now, politically, soci- socially, uh, culturally, is encouraging and inducing uh, gay men and women to to uh, to 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 you know find this uh, acceptance or demand this acceptance from from without of themselves. So this is a very unhealthy thing. Yes. And um, yes. Yeah. That seems to be a, a, yeah, a, big, I agree. a big issue. Yeah. And, and, and although I, I appreciate the, I appreciate the, uh, the attempt to distinguish between, you know, plain old homosexuals and the new LGBTQ. Um, but unfortunately, although there is a difference, there is overlap too. Mm-hmm. And the, the gay community, when it was just the gay community, we, the seeds were already there. They were already there. We were ready for this. We were a damaged group of people and we allowed, invited even more damaged people into our circle. Mm. And it changed our values. It changed the way we thought about ourselves and other people. And the demand today, I cannot believe in 2022. I remember when you could actually be fired from your job simply for being gay. You know, whether or not you did anything at work that was gay. I remember when you could be thrown out of your apartment. Um, that, that stuff was real. These were real, actual discriminatory problems that happened to homosexuals. That world is gone 
in the West, at least here in the United States and Canada, it's gone. Gay people are in the fucking cultural catbird seat right now. We are not oppressed. Gay people in America in 2022 are not oppressed. That doesn't mean that I don't recognize that there are abusive families who throw their children out. It doesn't mean that I don't recognize that there are pockets of the country where it's almost impossible to be gay, but they are way fewer than they used to be. On average, we are not oppressed anymore. And yet we scream louder than we have ever screamed before. It's like we have devolved into babies emotionally. It's a big problem. Gentlemen, I could yeah. talk to you literally for six more hours because this is fun, but I do have to close up pretty soon. Yep. No, I was just going to say something. We're running on two hours. So <laughs> any, any final, any final words, Josh, anything else you wanted to, to get out or should I? Should I bring it to oh, a Oh, probably, but let's talk again because I have a really okay, good yeah. time when we do this. All right. Even if you don't yeah, want to record it, maybe we can just Zoom sometime. Oh, <laughs> no, that would be great. Yeah, we won't We won't wait another 16 months, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, I'll have, to, I'll have right. to have you guys come back and I'll have to arrange a, 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 the correct topic uh, on my show too. So I love these conversations. Thank you so much for having me on. I really, oh. really appreciate it. And I love what oh. you do. I've been really you, digging Josh. your... Um, your review of uh, Desmet's, am I pronouncing his name right? Probably not. I think so. Uh, uh, his book uh, that you're putting up on Substack, I'm really enjoying it. Thank you. Great. No, thank you. I'm, I'm glad it's, uh, yeah, it's getting some some good response. I, I, I like doing it just to, to be able to, um, well, for my own selfish purposes of, you know, getting out, uh, getting ponderology out there. But, uh, but no, thank you. Uh, we've, we always yeah, love, a, we love it's, talking to you. It's not just you. selfish. <laughs> we love having you on, Josh. You're always, I mean, just the range of this conversation. I think that, uh, you know, we went from some, some silly, hilarious things to some really, you know, deep and kind of controversial and dark stuff. So thank you for going to all those places with us and we'll be sure to have you back. Um, hopefully relatively soon. <laughs> You know, not, not in a year, <laughs> but we're looking forward to it. So thanks again, Josh. Excellent. Have a good night and uh, thanks, good luck with the show. Again, Have a great night. For those still listening, yep. uh, Disaffected Podcasts, uh, you can find them Disaffected on YouTube, on Odyssey, on Rumble. I'll put links in the description to everything, um, to, to Josh's Substack, his website for consulting. So all the links will be there for people to get in touch with you. All right. Thanks, Josh. Excellent. And thanks, gentlemen. Okay. Have a good night. Take care. Bye-bye.